We need to declare war on sin. And we've been given tremendous authority by the Lord to do just that. I want to come back around to intimacy because that's the whole goal of what we're doing. We're trying to get close to God and find out who He is and really understand who He is. And again, we all understand that that's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's not something any of us can do on our own. We have to invite God in and let Him show us even how to do that. God wants intimacy with us because He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. And the message that we're going to hear tonight, I believe, is being released because God loves us so much that He wants everything that separates us from Him to be removed out of the way. He wants everything that's between us and Him to be removed out of the way. And all of that is possible because of Christ. But we have to accept our responsibility in the process. Okay? We have incredible rights that have been given to us because of Christ's sacrifice. But we also have incredible responsibilities that go with those rights. Too often in modern Christianity, we see people who want all the blessings of God, but they don't want any of the responsibilities that come with it. What we're talking about tonight is our part of that. Our responsibility in response to the gospel. What God is asking us to do if we want to have this life of intimacy, which is why Christ came. There's a cost to intimacy. Intimacy is not free. We don't just wake up one day and say, God, give me intimacy with you, and boom, it's there. It's something that we walk into. There's a price to be paid, and I'll tell you what the price is. It's everything. It is everything. Even if you're only here at Men on Fire one time and you never come back again, I want to make sure that everybody in here, and God has put this on my heart, understands what the gospel is. The gospel is that we were separated from God. That there was no sacrifice that could bring us together except for God Himself. He sent His Son to die for us, to spill His blood, to humble Himself, the very Son of God, to come to this earth and humble Himself so that we could be reconciled with God. He gave us, He gave His life so that we could get a picture of what God's heart is for us. Listen to me. I love you so much I'm willing to give my son. I love you so much I'm willing to give up the most precious thing in my life. And some of us know, Earl, you know, you have daughters. That would be a high price to pay, wouldn't it? For you to give up one of your daughters. I know it'd be, an, I, I can't even imagine the price it would pay to give up one of my sons. For those of you who don't have children, think of the most precious thing in your life or the 10 most precious things and think of just giving them up for someone you don't even know. Or worse yet, your worst enemy. That's a better picture. Your worst enemy. The person in your life who has caused the most pain and sorrow and hurt in your life. Imagine giving up your life or the most precious thing in your life, your child or your daughter, for the person who's been the worst to you. And then multiply that by billions. And then you're getting there. See, it's just, it, we can't even wrap our brains around what's happened here. But in it, we have some sense of what was given for us. We have some sense, even a small sense, of the price that was paid. And in response to that, what is God asking? He's asking for everything. Which really isn't too much to ask when you consider that He's given you everything that you have. And so really all we're doing when we surrender to the cross and to Christ is we're giving back to God that which was already His from the very beginning. Do you see how silly it is on one level? 
that we would hold back and clutch and cling to our life and say, well, God, you can come into this part, but not that part. And yet so many of us are clinging on and trying to hold on to control over our lives. And the truth is we have no control anyway. It's the illusion of control at best. And so I just want to challenge you and let this word challenge you that the gospel is that you give your whole life to God. It's not yours anymore. It's His. And if you're not getting instructions from Him on a regular basis about what you're supposed to be doing with your life, then you should, you, you should really ask yourself, have you given yourself to Christ? Is He Lord of your life, not just out of your mouth, but on a practical level, day by day, moment by moment, are you continually surrendering over to Him and saying, God, what do I do today? Not just coming to Him for the big decisions of life. Who should, oh God, bring me a wife. Oh God, help me get this loan. You know, those are great times to come to God, but I'll tell you the truth, you're, you're really missing it if those are the only times you're having. Or, or when you're in trial and you're struggling, I mean, even the pagans do that when they're in the bathroom of a bar on St. Patrick's Day, puking in the toilet. They're like, oh God, save me. Even they do that. So don't count yourself special if that's when you're calling on God. It's those times when things are good or when things are you know, going along smoothly that you're consistently going to the Lord and saying, God, my life is yours. My resources are yours. Everything I have is yours. That's the gospel. So if for whatever reason you've gotten here and you haven't quite embraced that, I want to encourage you to just do that tonight and to give up whatever it is you might be holding on to. Because when you do that, something supernatural is going to happen. And God's going to pour out on your life when your heart is truly submitted to Him. We're going to go to um, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And before we... Um, this, this teaching that we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be, we, we front-loaded the war on sin. We're going to be covering spending time with God, the war on worldliness, and the war on the enemy. We're going to be focusing tonight on the war on sin. Why we have to declare war on sin in our lives in order to have intimacy with God and in order to realize... Um, I mean, part of it is recognizing who God is. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about in just a minute. In order to understand why we need to have a war on sin, we need to understand who God is. And in the, and in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8... I'm just going to read from you guys, and all the things I'm going to be reading are out of the NLT. The Bibles, there should be extra NLTs that are around, but it should be similar in most of them. We have to understand who God is, and above all things, God is holy. You know, there is, we have some, some really powerful snapshots of what's happening in the throne room right now. But in these snapshots that God gives us throughout Scripture... We get a picture of what's going on in the throne room and has been going on in the throne room from before the earth was ever made. And in that picture, we see it in Revelation 4, uh, verse 8. It says, Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy. See, God could have us, He could have the angelic beings saying a lot of things in His presence because He's God. He gets to decide what He's going to have said in His presence. He could say, love, love, love. He could, he could, they could be crying out, mercy, mercy, mercy. They could be crying out, compassion, compassion, compassion. 
They could be crying out gentle, gentle, gentle. They could be crying out many things. They could be crying out awesome, awesome, awesome. But the word that God has chosen to have proclaimed over His being to represent who He is, is holy. Holy. And so we have to come to an understanding of what does that mean? What does it mean to be holy? It's the opposite of sin. That's a good picture. We've got to use a lot of pictures because it's hard to define something by itself. I mean, holiness originated with God. So it's like, how do you use holiness to define, you know, I mean, it's like, how do you get your arms around it? But it's the absence of sin. It is purity. It's purity. It's holiness. And, and it's, it's being set apart. It's, it's not common. It's rare. And some of you know I've shared the vision that I've had of being in the throne room of God and, and watching my flesh and my bones and everything just literally be obliterated like a nuclear winter. I mean, that's the holiness of God. You know, where it comes and just blows, you know, blows everything away because of, of the purity of the holiness. It's like just fire, just incendiary fire, just burning away everything that would hold itself up against God. Anything defiling, instantly consecrated, instantly sanctified in the presence of the Lord. And so all we're doing as we're going through this process of sanctification is we're getting rid of those things that would hold us back. And I shared at one point, I'll share it again. Um, there was a time where God gave me a picture of the throne room and his throne room, it's the sanctification process is kind of like this. God's throne room, if you could just picture it. And we're walking closer and closer to the Lord. And as we take each step closer to the Lord, his holiness begins to penetrate deeper into our lives. And he begins to show us areas that we haven't seen when we were back here. Suddenly we're a little bit closer to the Lord and in the intensity of his presence is, is we can feel the pain of our sin in us that we couldn't feel when we were back there. How many have experienced suddenly God showing you something that's inconsistent with him that you didn't see before? And as we get closer to him, you know, what he spoke to me in that is he said, you know, Stephen, there's many people who are on this journey into the center of my throne room. And they feel the burn and they feel the presence and they feel the press and the heat against their flesh. And they take a step back and say, I'm fine right here. The problem with that thinking is that, that there, we're, there's always movement in the spirit. Either we're going into the center of God or we're drifting away. There's no standing right here, I'm fine. Because the minute you stand right here, the gravitational pull of sin and the world will begin to drift you backwards away from the Lord. That's just the way it is. And so there's really only one choice we have to make is that we're going to continue to press in. And so what happens in the life of a believer is that the bar keeps going up. As well it should. Because we know more. And God's revealed to us more. And so... As he says in Scripture, more is expected to whom more is given. And so you can expect that as you get closer to God, there's going to be things in your life that were okay last year that aren't okay this year. There are things in your life that were okay last week that aren't okay this week. Why? Because he's forming Christ in you. Because he loves you and he wants you to be closer to him. And what happens as you get closer to him is He releases more of your spirit. You're in, you, you experience an intensity of God's presence in your life that's greater than you did before. 
If you submit to the process. If you stop and you say, I'll go this far, no farther, then guess what? You don't get to go into that place where you might be hearing people give testimonies about, I was driving down the road and suddenly the Lord told me this. And suddenly the Lord told me that. God doesn't release those things until we get to a place where we can be trusted in the little things. And so some of us might have some little things that we've left undone with the Lord that He wants to come and reveal to us. And that's why Operation Consecration is such a great opportunity for us because for many of us it might be an opportunity to go back and see things that have been left undone that God wants to deal with so that we're not stuck back here. And we can enter into that next level of experiencing God's presence and God's glory and God's call in our lives. I want to give you another scripture. We're not going to go there, but Isaiah 6, chapter 3 through 5, it's the same picture that we get in the book of Revelation. Again, a snapshot of, of the throne room. Isaiah's in the throne room and he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what he hears the angelic beings crying out in his presence. Same message. You know, 500 years earlier. What's going on in the throne room didn't change. They're still crying out, holy, holy, holy. Isn't that amazing? And guess what, brothers? When we get there, guess what they're going to be saying? Holy, holy, holy. Are you, are you tracking this? God's not changing. We're the ones that need to get changed. Because we're the ones that aren't walking in that, but that's what He's calling us to. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And this might be something that you've heard in modern Christianity. Well, nobody's perfect. That's impossible. Have you ever heard that? Well, we're all sinners. Have you heard that before? In Christian circles? Contemporary Christian circles? Those statements are true in part, but they're not true in part. Here's what the word of the Lord says, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Does that sound like what we just talked about? He's saying, don't slip back into your old ways of living. You didn't know any better then. There's that principle of, now that you know, you need to walk in it. More is expected to whom more is given. As you get closer to God, He's going to ask more of you. And here He says, you must be holy in the things you do on Sunday. Did anybody read that? Be holy in everything you do. That holiness should permeate every single part of your life. It shouldn't be something that's just taken out for show because we're around a bunch of other brothers in the Lord. It should be something that's part of our life. It's just the way it is. Now, um, go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Wow, holiness. How do we do holiness? That's a pretty tall order. Holiness, I would suggest to you, is absolutely impossible without God. Without God, it's absolutely impossible. But every single one of us has been given the Holy Spirit and the whole function of the Holy Spirit, one of the major functions, is to bring holiness into our life. And that happens as we yield our will to the Holy Spirit day by day in the little decisions of life. 
that sanctification is done in us and the Holy Spirit begins to bring real holiness to us. Not hypothetical holiness and I've heard a lot of that kind of teaching and preaching where, oh brother, my sins are forgiven. It's under the blood of Jesus and you look at the person's life and they look like a total pagan. That is not what we're talking about. We are not talking about some kind of you know, proclamation that you announce over yourself because of what Jesus did. What we're talking about is actual holiness where God actually brings transformation. That's what his intent is. It's not for people to stand on what was done on the cross and say, it's all done on the cross. I have no responsibility. And even though I look like a pagan, I'm fine. Thank God for grace. Clearly in the scriptures, Paul's arguing against that kind of position. He says, that's ridiculous. That is a total twisting and perversion of the word of God. Grace is there to cover us while we're sinners. Absolutely. But as we get knowledge and revelation about what God is calling us to do, Grace, the function of grace changes. It goes from covering us as sinners who are ignorant and don't know anything about God. And God, all of us were in that place. How many were in that place where we knew nothing about God and His grace covered us and He revealed Himself to us when we were absolutely lost? That is a function of grace. But there's a higher function of grace as well, or an equal function, I should say. I don't want to pit them against one another. The other function of grace is to empower us to resist sin. Not to cover our sin when we do it intentionally or live in an, a lifestyle that intentionally we do whatever we feel like, but it's supposed to empower us to resist sin. It's supposed to empower us to overcome temptation. And so those two uses of grace and applications and purposes of grace are constantly in tension. But the one should be gaining ground in our lives more and more as the other loses ground as we begin to walk in actual holiness and not stand in that place of grace where we have no responsibility because we don't know anything. God's releasing revelation to us so we can begin to use grace for its purpose and walk in it in that way. And so you see here in 2 Peter, this is another powerful, uh, I think, refutation of that version of grace and, and what holiness is about. It says here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says it would be better if they had never known, he's talking about believers, if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. We've talked about this scripture before and, and I just want to bring it up again because I feel this is right on this point. It'd be better if you didn't even know Jesus than to know Jesus and ignore the nature of God and what he's trying to form in you and to agree with that and submit to it. That's not saying run out and be holy. Nobody, None of us can do that. But if you pretend like you don't understand who God is and what His call is on each of our lives to step into holiness so that other people around us can see the glory of God revealed. That's why this is about other people around us actually being able to see the reality of Christ. I thought that was a powerful untestimony that Kent gave tonight when he, when, he, when he shared the testimony of Haji. That should give us a sense of the state of things. When the Muslims say, well, we thought you were a Christian because you're drinking and smoking and hanging out and, and, and running around with women. He hadn't even said one word about Jesus. But immediately they'd already identified him with Christianity because he was drinking, smoking, and running around with women. I hope, I hope we felt that in the Spirit. Because that is absolutely the opposite and a perversion of the gospel. 
And we're experiencing the fruit of that in our nation because we've accepted a gospel that doesn't require holiness of us. And I'm here to tell you, brothers, that absolutely what is central on God's heart is to form holiness in our lives. Again, that is not to say that we can do that by our own human effort. But we have to agree with the process. And the process is submitting ourselves to the Lord. So hopefully now we have an understanding that, you know what? The God that we serve is holy. And He wants to form that in us. He wants us to be holy. So that we can have intimacy with Him. But also so that as we go around the world, they will look at us and see us and go, there's something different about that guy. How many want to hear that? How many want to hear that from friends and family members? There's something about you. What is it? I can, and, and they don't even know what it is. The woman who was, who was in the elevator with Dan and, and left, I guarantee you, she's like, what is going on with that guy? What's going on with that guy? The blind lady on the road is going, what is going on with that woman? That, that woman's a crazy woman. She stopped and prayed for me? Pulled off the highway and prayed for me? That's the kind of thing that we want to be showing to the world. And unless we submit to this process, brothers, we won't look like Jesus. We will not look like Jesus. We will be a stinky, smelly church that the world will point to and go, see, you got nothing. And unfortunately... A stinky, smelly church is the thing that is probably the number one cause of atheism in our nation. People who profess Jesus with their mouth and don't smell like him or look like him at all. So I don't know about you, but I, that's not what I, I don't want to be that. I want to be someone who, who when people see me, they, I want them to see Jesus. And when I talk to them, I want Jesus to be talking. When I hug somebody, I want them to feel like Jesus is hugging them. I'm telling you, brothers, this is connected to holiness. It's holiness because our sin and all of our junk is in the way of God fully coming and manifesting in us and incarnating us and living like Paul described. It's no longer me who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Do you understand that God's whole goal is to incarnate you with the Spirit of Christ so that there are Christ's walking around all over the earth spreading the gospel. Literally, He is living. We are His body, His hands and feet. He's living His eternal life in us. That's the power of the gospel is that suddenly Christ can be multiplied through all Christians who are willing to submit and pay the price. And the price is everything that we've talked about. If you guys would go to Revelation chapter 12 with me. So now we understand we're serving a holy God who's calling us to holiness and that this is connected with our intimacy, our ability to have fellowship, consistent fellowship with God. To be able to walk in His presence, to be able to hear Him consistently, to have dialogue with Him, to know His perfect will. So my question is, we've, you know, the title of this teaching is Declaring War on Sin. And you guys might, might be saying, why declare war? Isn't that a little extreme? I mean, you, some of you guys know that you know, I, have, I, I tend to be a little bit extreme on things and zealous about things. Um, but So is this just another extreme Steve, like title of a message, or is there something really to this? And in the book of Revelation, um, chapter 12, verses 7 and 9, I want to suggest to you that this, we have been born into a war zone. 
We were born into a war that's been going on long before we ever got there. So when, we, when I ask the question, why declare war? The truth is the war has been declared. The war has been going on from before we ever got here and we just stepped into it. And so we have a choice to make whether we're going to actually act like we're in war or go la 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 and pretend like we don't know that it's going on and end up being civilian casualties. How many know that oftentimes in combat, in fact, throughout history, the most casualties actually take place in the civilian population? It's not actually the combatants, it's the civilians. Why? Because they're untrained for war, and when war goes on around them, they, take, they don't know to get down in the ditch, they don't know to take cover, they don't know, you know about maneuvering and staying undercover and staying out of battle zones. They're just kind of, just kind of sheep, you know, moving around and then suddenly they're, they're taken out. God doesn't want us to be a casualty because we're civilians on the battlefield. If we're going to be a casualty, He wants us to be a casualty because we're equipped, we're trained, and we got taken out because we were being sent to take our objective and that was the price that we needed to pay for the objective to be taken. Soldiers understand that. Why else would grown rational men and women go into a combat zone? unless they knew they had counted the cost, they knew the cost was potentially their life. And that's how Jesus wants to challenge us. The cost of this is everything. It could cost you your life. The gospel could cost you your life. I know that seems like sort of a distant thing that you hear about with the persecuted church, and we prayed for them actually before the meeting started tonight. There are Christians who, how many know there are Christians dying for their faith right now? How many know that? If you didn't know it, we can get you on the Voice of the Martyrs and some other websites. There are Christians who are dying for Christ right now. And I want to tell you that that the battle is that real and it's coming to America and the battle's that real here. And so we need to get into that combat, that combat mind frame. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. It says, starting in verse 7, Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. How many know who the dragon is? Satan. Okay? And the dragon lost the battle and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Guess what, brothers? What do you think that makes earth? It's a battlefront. The battlefront has moved from the heavens to the earth. And so we're in combat. There is war going on all around us every single day. And the minute we get lulled into thinking that it's not going on, the enemy wins. Because if we start acting like civilians, then we're going to get taken out. When, when, when we declare war and when we begin to understand that this is a combat zone... It, it brings our spirit and our heart into a different posture. War tends to foster zealousness. If you know that you're going to be sent over to a war zone, your mentality changes. If you talk to any soldier before they deploy, you know, I was in the National Guard, I would train and train and train to go to war. And whenever there was a major conflict going on in the world, something changed in the atmosphere of our training. Our training left the kind of peacetime, oh, this is nice to learn, and yeah, we should learn how, how that we should do this. 
you know, and, and yeah, you know, someday hypothetically we might be called into combat. I'll tell you that we didn't have the, our hearts weren't, weren't the same, but when suddenly the Gulf War was declared, I'll tell you what, there was a bunch of guys who got real serious about what we were learning. Why? Because the stakes went up in their spirit, in their hearts, in their minds. They understood, wait a minute, we're not just practicing. We're actually could be called in to go to a war zone. Your life depends on it. And that same thing happens when we as Christians get lulled into this kind of peacetime security mentality. And unfortunately, that's where much of the church is in the West. The church in other parts of the world understands that they're in war because there's bombs going off around them. There are people getting killed to the left and to the right and churches getting burned down and believers and church leaders being tortured and mutilated. So they understand that they're in a combat zone. So guess what? They don't go to sleep. They don't get lulled into this false sense of security that we're in peacetime. Because the truth is, there's just as much of a war going on in the United States as there is in Africa and in China. Except the demons that we're fighting aren't the ones that are literally coming out and persecuting us to our face. They're persecuting us in a much more insidious way. Through apathy and complacency and materialism and comfort. But I'll tell you what, their goal is exactly the same as having, us, having our heads cut off or being sawed in half or being stoned to death. Their goal is to keep us out of the battle, whatever the cost might be. And so something happens when we move into a wartime mentality that changes our spiritual alertness. And that's why I believe God is calling us to begin to use the language of war and speak about things in, in war terms. That we're not just... We're not just maybe going to do this. It's, it's not like something nice that we're going to do. Declare war on sin. This is something that we need to like set our hearts to. And understand what the stakes are. War fosters zealousness. A wartime mentality fosters zealousness. And it fosters something called wholeheartedness. When you're going into a war zone or you understand that you're in a war zone, you move from a place of half-heartedness to a place of wholeheartedness. You don't just kind of casually talk about the battle. You're completely in. And that's what God's calling us to as a fellowship and, and the whole church, for that matter. We talk about the church a lot, but the truth is we're the church and, and God's calling the whole church into this combat. And He wants us to walk in a place of wholeheartedness. Um, there's a scripture in Numbers 32. Um, oh, excuse me. Numbers 25. Um, you guys can go there if you want, but I'm just going to... I'm just going to share the story with you in kind of a paraphrased version. Um, what was happening at the time as, is uh, Israel was in a place of... They had just come, they were still in the wilderness and um, some of the Israelites had begun uh, having sex with the Midianite women and the other local women from the land and were contaminating and, and uh, defiling the people of Israel. And so the elders had all gathered 
in the, at the tabernacle really to take this issue to the Lord. I said, God, what do we do? These people are just, you know, they're, they're, they're sleeping with the local women and um, they're defiling your people. And, and, and so what do we do about this? And they're all gathered at the tabernacle. And while they do that, a man walks up like right in front of the tabernacle with a Midianite woman and goes into his tent to have sex with her. Like right, I mean, just brazen, you know, disobedience to what the instructions of the Lord had been. And immediately a plague is released on the camp of the Israelites. Because God just, he's like, get out of the way. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing my judgment against these people. They're in disobedience to me. They've been in rebellion. They're still in rebellion. And a plague breaks out. In response to that, Phinehas, who is the son of Eleazar. Eleazar was the son of Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest. Everybody remember Aaron? Aaron and Moses? Aaron and Moses show? Um, so he's the grandson of Aaron. Picks up a spear that's nearby, runs into this man's tent and pierces the man and the woman with the spear. And the Lord said of him, he said, because of his zealousness for me, I have cut off the plague and I won't destroy all the people. And so we see that, there's, that this is God's heart. His heart is that, is that we don't like follow Christ half-heartedly. My hope for you brothers is that the people around you will say this of you. That guy is going a little too far with God. That's my hope and prayer for you. Is that the people around you will start saying, you know what, he's a little bit, he, he's gone too far. You know, he's, he's taken this, he's like extreme Jesus. That's my prayer for you. Because if that's true, then the kingdom of God is going to abound in you. And there will be those people, I'm telling you, there'll be well-meaning Christians who will start reining you in and saying, well, you know, I don't know if you're hearing from God. That doesn't sound like God, you know, to quit your job and to, you know, drive to, to, drive to Houston. That doesn't make much sense. What about your family? And I'm telling you, we've heard, we heard story after story of well-meaning Christians coming up to us and going, and, and they might even have Scripture. how they didn't understand why we were doing what we were doing. But I'll tell you what, there wouldn't be 30 pastors that are going to do the meaning of Christmas and thousands of people coming to the Lord if Steve Olson hadn't said yes to God. So I want you to know that the things that God might ask you to do might not match up with common sense and they might not match up with, with churchianity. Now I'm not saying be rash and you, know, you get a, a, you know, a leading to go do something crazy. You should come to brothers and that's what we're here for, to get witnesses in the Spirit. We're not talking about like stupidity here because we can all be deceived as well and we have to be very careful that what we're hearing is the Holy Spirit. But that's why God has us in fellowship so there can be multiple witnesses of what God is calling us to do. Okay? As we look at sin in our lives, though, I want to tell you that the, the, one, the single biggest success factor, I think, in eradicating sin from our lives is whether we are wholehearted in it or not, whether we are totally committed to it or not. And that's what declaring war does. Declaring war basically takes you out of a posture of, well, I don't know if God's really asking me to not do that anymore. And moving over to a posture of, you know what, whatever God tells me, if I hear the Spirit of the Lord say it and it's consistent with the Word, I'm in. And it's out. 
It's, I'm done with it in my life. Can you see the difference between the heart posture between brother A and brother B? Okay. There's consequences for not walking in this kind of wholeheartedness. And I want to read to you a scripture out of Numbers 32, chapter 11 and 12. Listen to what the Lord says. Of all those I rescued from Egypt, no one who is 20 years old or older will ever see the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For they have not obeyed me wholeheartedly. You catch that word wholeheartedly? The only exceptions are Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they have wholeheartedly followed the Lord. So basically what God was saying in this entrance into the promised land is a prophetic picture. How many know the promised land is a prophetic picture of eternity? Those who entered into the promised land, there were over a million people. You know, what's shocking about this, this particular passage is that God was willing to keep over a million people out of the promised land because of lack of wholeheartedness. And let two enter in. Two people out of over a million. And it was over this issue of are you in it all the way or are you not? He didn't say that these other people never obeyed him. We know that they did obey him in part, but not with their whole hearts. And that's what he's looking for from each of us. That is what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. Is that your whole heart is committed to Christ. There is no part of you that is held back. Now, you're going to say, well, you know, can you give me something out of the New Testament, Brother Steve? Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Starting in verse 13. It says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. Interesting, they're going to choose that way. There's a choice involved. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and listen to this, and only a few will ever find it. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few will ever find it. That sounds like kind of a similar ratio, doesn't it? Two out of a million. I mean, it kind of sounds like the same language. A few is not many. And so I just, I really feel like God wants us to understand this idea of wholeheartedness is kind of foundational. And so if there are pieces of your heart that you've even held back up to this point, and not being willing to fully enter into the things, the call of God in your life, that that's not a real safe place to be and to kind of play around with. Luke chapter 10, verse 27, it talks about the greatest commandment. It says, you need to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. That sounds like your whole heart. That sounds like there's no part of your heart that's not totally sold out for Jesus. All of it. I'm going to read you guys some other scriptures. I'm just going to rattle some of these off. Um, 
We're not going to have time to go to all of them, but again, I'll give them to you. Deuteronomy 11.18. This is Moses speaking. So commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. He's talking about the word of God that was released to the people of Israel through Moses. Deuteronomy 26.16. Today, the Lord your God has commanded you to obey all these decrees and regulations, so be careful to obey them wholeheartedly. Do you guys understand what wholehearted means then? Do you know that you can obey God and do the things you think you're supposed to do, but do it in a half-hearted way, and that <clears throat> is not it? So he's trying to get us to understand that our heart posture, the condition of our heart, even as we walk this out, is just as important as us doing the stuff. In fact, it might even be more important, because when your heart is holy with the Lord, you're going to do the stuff. That'll just flow naturally out of it. If you find yourself in that place where there are pieces of your heart that are not going along with what the Lord's saying, you know, maybe it's time to stop and ask God to just do a work in your heart and get your heart in the right spot. Joshua 24:14. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. Part of it is not having anything else that takes up your heart. Nothing else should be more important than the Lord in your life. Just the way it is. For a lot of us, that's a process. We've got to get rid of that stuff that's idolatry. You know, we don't have little statues around in our houses, but we've got a lot of things that take up our heart and our mind and our time. And, 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 and as we find when we get into the war on worldliness, most of us are spending more of our time on the things of this world than we are on the kingdom of God. And that's the test. Look at your life and evaluate what are you spending your time on. If you're spending 90% of your time on things that are worldly and carnal and are going to pass away, maybe you've got priorities screwed up. Maybe you're missing it. God loves us. That's why He's challenging us. He loves us because He wants us to have the fullness of joy, the fullness of peace, the fullness of His kingdom in our lives. That's why He's challenging our hearts right now and saying, hey, just go all the way with me. I'll help you. I'll take you there. I'll do that work in your heart. You know, none of this is to bring condemnation or, hey, we're not doing a good job. It's, it's all to build us up and to say, hey, man, we need God, don't we? We need God to get into this place. Um, here in Jeremiah, he says in, in uh, Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. What is he saying? If you come after me completely with wild abandon, if you give everything, if you just abandon everything but me, you will find me. But if there's part of you that you're trying to keep for yourself, if there's pieces of your life that you're trying to hang on to control of, don't be surprised when you don't find me. That's the other reading of it, the other side of it. Don't be surprised when you don't see the fruit of the kingdom busting out in your life all over. When you don't see that, maybe it's time to have God examine your heart. Is your heart totally given over to the Lordship of Christ? Is He Lord? Is He Lord in actuality instead of hypothetically or occasionally? Neither of those last two represent wholeheartedness. After we, I just want to say one more thing on this. Um, because I want to leave you guys with some hope because the truth is that God is, who, God is the one that gives us wholeheartedness. And so how do we get wholehearted? We ask and we keep asking for wholeheartedness. 
we ask God and we keep on asking God, God, make my heart holy after you. God, give me a heart that will just pursue you. God, take away anything that would hold me back from running after you completely and with wild abandon. Just take it out of the way. And you keep on asking. Because he says this, And so I tell you, keep on asking. You'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. So if you keep on asking for this kind of abandon for God, you're going to get it. That's his promise to you.